Jack, Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell, an SE5-enabled paramilitary organisation hell-bent on getting sponsored by Peter Thiel so that we can buy even more SE5s. Alexander Dugin is a Russian philosopher and political theorist, one-time advisor to the Speaker of Russia's Duma, a long-time supporter of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, possible influence on President Vladimir Putin, and the target of a car bombing in 2022, which failed to kill him, but killed his daughter. Born in Moscow in 1962, details on Dugin's younger years are hazy. Whether because of links to the Soviet intelligence services, or by other means, Dugan studied Julius Evola and René Gunon's writings at the Lenin State Library, also becoming part of the Yuzhinsky Circle, a dissident group who mixed and matched Satanism, Nazism and the occult. For this episode, Levi and I read Dugan's The Fourth Political Theory, published in 2009. This book is both a call to action and a blueprint for developing a political theory to challenge and replace liberalism. Liberalism being a political theory which has, in Dugan's telling, become unopposed and, in being unopposed, become totalizing, universalizing, and inescapable, transforming into a rhizomal morass of post-liberalism without any vertical orientation. For the most part, this book represents a list of things that the fourth political theory won't be, rather than offering a firm explanation of what it is, although there are a few specifics. It's strongly anti-Western, particularly anti-American. He loves Martin Heidegger and shoehorns Dasein into anything he can. He's all about cultural relativism and national self-determination, except for when it comes to Ukraine. All in all, I expected the anti-Western invectives, but I never anticipated that this book would get as weird as it does. So, friends, prepare yourselves for some continental philosophy word salad and enjoy. Dugan belongs to a group of philosophers that I've come to think of as why philosophers, in that they're, they're people who build up these intellectual edifices, which come crumbling down as soon as you ask, okay, why? So yeah, Evola is, <laughs> is maybe the best example of this, in that within, well, as we said in the Evola episodes we've done, he builds up this system which is internally fairly consistent, but based upon these handful of huge assumptions. And as soon as you look at one of the assumptions and go, okay, why? Nothing works. Like it, it just falls over. This is why I think Pauline Hansen is the greatest of modern philosophers. Please explain. <laughs> Please explain. Please explain. Please explain. <laughs> if you just throw Pauline the Hansen. The reincarnation of Socrates. Into, it's just the Socratic in, method. Into uh, global geopolitics and uh, philosophical <laughs> debates. She just run around Europe, just going, please explain, <laughs> Deleuze, please explain, Dugan, please explain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah Sophie just develops this reputation of being an absolute bulldozer in the philosophical world, just steamrolling people's philosophical systems. She's Socrates 2.0, Saint Socrates of Queensland. Saint Socrates of Queensland, yeah. With that caveat, I I was kind of interested early on uh, when he started criticizing uh, liberalism because, mm. well, obviously <laughs> I'm in a Western, like I've grown up in a Western setting. So probably some of the things in liberalism or whatever I perhaps take for granted, plus my readings of uh, liberal philosophers over the years 
has shaped sort of like the way that I think about things. So I was actually kind of looking forward to reading somebody from uh, like quite a different background, in this case, Russian, um, Russian military or something. His family was in like the, the, the Russian secret services or something like that. Yeah, so I was looking forward to reading it, and he even mentioned uh, one of the books that I love, <laughs> uh, The Open Society and Its Enemies by Karl Popper. He sort of mentioned yeah, it. Yeah, he complains gave it, about it a lot. He gave it, like, one sentence early on the book, and I don't, I didn't feel as though he ever actually, like, directly... He just sort of, like, said, oh, well, I disagree with this. But I, it didn't seem as though he actually uh, sort of substantively spoke about the things in that book whereas he he brought up some other he <laughs> no, brought no, up no. some other so-called like liberal philosophers like uh this one guy in like particular Iron Spencer. Rand Spencer one, at one point he was talking about how um liberalism is fundamentally greedy and believes in the strong preying on the weak and uses it as an example Iron Rand, Rand as a yeah, representative yeah. of of mainstream liberal opinion uh, and he and some guy named Spencer uh, Herbert Spencer or something, um, who seems yeah, yeah, in yeah. his representation is a social Darwinist, and then he's like, "Well, this is all liberalism." <laughs> it's like, Mwah. yeah, and that's when it became pretty clear. Granted, even Spencer in- Spencer was very popular back um, in, uh, but like may- maybe back when uh, Dugan was studying or something. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when Spencer wrote, but he he was a social Darwinist. He was quite popular, but his popularity has waned significantly. Good. To the point where wrong. basically no one, no one in the, yeah, no one in the past few decades has really paid him any attention. So I was suspicious but, of that um, um, characterization of liberalism in terms of like this one political philosopher because I was like, I've never heard of this guy. He's he's got views. If he's a social Darwinist, like those are extremely outdated views and they're wrong. And but this is being represented as like this is what Western philosophy is about. And so I, I think I got this immediate sense early in the book that a big chunk of it is propaganda. Yeah, yeah, or at least propaganda adjacent. And yeah. when when we start talking about his view of racism, which I'm sure we will, that to me felt like that was pure propaganda. propaganda because he yeah, basically stretches propaganda. the definition of racism to mean anything he doesn't like in the West. And I have a feeling that he's doing it because he knows that a lot of Westerners get very sensitive about being called racist. Yeah, like economic racism. Yeah, racism, fashion yeah, racism. Fashion racism, yeah. Anyway. It's, he starts <laughs> sounding like a real social justice warrior in that part because everything he doesn't like is racism. I was expecting to see pictures of Vladimir, of, uh, of uh, Alexander Dugan with, with like dyed purple hair, wearing horn-rimmed <laughs> pink glasses or something like that after his racism tirade. And then, the, then after learning that he's... He's an avowed cultural relativist as well. Yeah, that spun my head through a bit of a loop as well. <laughs> that at least it was fairly consistent with the rest of his beliefs. So when in open-minded throughout the book, I got pretty sick of it. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, that's, that's about my experience. Yeah. <laughs> but having said that, occasionally there were parts where I was like, oh, that's an interesting thing. Um, yeah. And I'm glad I've read it actually because... yeah. Look, it's hard, it's hard to say to what extent Dugan's beliefs shape Russian state policy, whether he actually writes things and then Vladimir Putin reads them or talks to Dugan 
and bases his his decisions on that, or whether United Russia has already got a series of views that happen to coincide with Alexander Dugan's thought and just keep him around as sort of an intellectual fig leaf justifying their behaviour. I'm not sure, but he is representative of a strain of thought in Russia. He, he was at one point, if you have a quick read of his, his biography, he was the advisor to the fourth highest political position. Uh, it's like a... Um, not chairman of the, what is it? It's like, um, I think he's, is he still in the like, Duma? Yeah. It's almost like, a, it's like the, the speaker of the Duma <laughs> sort of position. I think he was like the fourth, mm-hmm. he's the advisor to, yeah, one of the most powerful people in the country. So that's pretty significant. I don't know what his current position is, if he holds it. And he was also like a professor at, um, like one of the major universities in Moscow. So He's obviously somewhat influential, but obviously it's like a large country, right? So, yeah. Well, influential, but it's to what extent is he influential on people who actually make decisions? True. And that's unclear. But he has been calling for a war in Ukraine for a, a long time. So uh, you know, whether he, he, got, his he got his wish because he was pushing for it or his interests or his desires and those of Vladimir Putin's happened to coincide. I'm not sure, but at least what he is describing is a worldview shared by at least some Russians with power. So I'm happy I've read this book. However, I think people could probably just read excerpts of it and get the general idea quickly. I don't think reading this whole book is necessary. No, no. I'd be interested also to read a more recent book of his because this is more than 10 years old now. Yeah, and he's read. He's he's written some some uh, more recent stuff. Um, oh, he's written a lot. I uh, what what did I learn from him? Mm, not sure yet. Still thinking about it. Not sure that I agree with a single piece of what he said. But <laughs> um, so what problem? I think some of his criticisms of liberalism are justified. That's also if I'm being very generous to him. One of those things where sometimes it can t- contain some elements of truth, but in the context of the overall philosophy and uh, worldview, it's extremely distorted and also seems like just convenient. It's like when the truth is, or when, when something that seems reasonable is convenient, he'll talk about it. <laughs> but a lot of the time, yes, he's just like yes. off, he's off the fucking deep end. <laughs> It's especially the middle part of this book. It was such fucking hard work because the translation was terrible and it's, it's just him talking about Dasein, but poorly translated. Fortunately, actually, because I'm assuming Russian has a similar sentence structure to Czech, I felt like I could understand plenty of it by just thinking about how these sorts of things would be written in Czech and then it made much more sense. But that's still a pretty bad reader experience. Yeah, well, for me, some parts of it just didn't make any sense. <laughs> like, no, not criticizing <laughs> his philosophy, but literally the sentence structure is just, this is a nonsense sentence. <laughs> yeah, when I was reading it, I thought, yeah, this is just Slavlish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, forgiving that there's some, some, something lost that's in not the his translation. Fault, that's it's not his fault. But there were definitely some parts that seemed to have been translated fairly well oh, 
And There's plenty of it that's definitely his fault. And it's 100% his fault. <laughs> He's a true Hegelian. <laughs> but I will give him credit for making me more interested in reading Heidegger. And uh, who's yeah, the Yeah, this may be uh, one to read. Husserl. Husserl and Heidegger. Is that how you say? Hersel? Yeah, yeah. Hersel? Hersel? Um, yeah. Husserl, I don't know. Husserl and uh, Heidegger. Yeah, I want to read them, those two, maybe on this podcast. Not because I think that uh, they seem as though they're true. It's just they seem to be referenced a lot by a certain type of uh, philosopher. Dasein's come up a number of times. Yeah, although I think think. being in time is something like 600 pages of the most turgid prose you can imagine. That would be be harder than anything we've ever done. Seriously horrible. Um, There's people who spend like, their whole life. I was reading this one comment on Reddit or somewhere was it? I can't remember. Um, where this guy was saying he spent three years reading Heidegger and somebody else for his master's thesis or whatever. And he says, like, took me three years to understand. I'm like, maybe it took you three years to understand, or maybe it just took you three years to like brainwash yourself into thinking that they were actually saying anything. When I hear that it took someone (laughs) three years to understand something like that, my first impulse is to think well it's probably poorly written it just this sounds more like a communication problem than a problem with the complexity of the ideas i just don't accept that yeah it's gonna take that long of dedicated study to really understand something you could study three years very hard in an undergraduate degree and get a physics major with like uh subjects in quantum quantum mechanics and stuff in three years so you can cover a shitload of ground in three years if you have like the pedagogical support. So the idea that it takes you three years to understand shit that Martin Heidegger's saying is, uh, I I find it, <clears throat> I'm incredulous that that's actually containing anything useful. <laughs> I think I I think it might be confusion ray philosophy. Yeah, that's yes. exactly it. it. It's not not a question of pedagogical support. It's a question of <laughs> the the base text just being. I don't know if he was being intentionally obscure, but mm. seems it is as though a lot obscure. of these writers have contempt for their reader. I certainly felt like that would do you gonna So I know you're better than me. Fucking hell. <laughs> Hurry up, stop being so like weird with your writing. Just say say something. <laughs> All right. So what's what is the basic premise of the fourth political theory by Alexander so I'm going to be Jordan, honest, man. because this book this book is part of a project i i don't think i fully understood this fucking book <laughs> I don't, maybe it's just too much confusionary <laughs> philosophy for me there were aspects of it where he referenced his own work and a lot of background knowledge so coming into it not being familiar with some of the, a lot of the stuff that he talks about just left me you know having to like catch up with basics or make guesstimates about what I think he's saying. But then there's also another aspect of it where I was just like, okay, even if I think uh, I have a good sort of estimation of roughly what he's talking about, some of the things he's saying is just complete nonsense. (laughs) And so I walked away from it being like, okay, you don't like liberalism. You want to overthrow liberalism, but like, (laughs) how does, what are we doing here? (laughs) Well, the, the point is that the fourth political theory is as yet unformed. So in his telling, within modernity, there were three political theories. The first is liberalism. The second is communism. The third 
is fascism. What he is setting out to do, and this is on the basis of other people's work, for example, Ellen de Benoit's work. Have you read any of de Benoit's He work? wants to create a fourth political theory that can transcend post-modernity, which is the state that occurs after modernity, as you might have etymologically guessed. No. Where liberalism has not won. If, uh, liberalism not if has defeated is, the other two. Not if time is cyclical. Maybe post-modernity is before modernity. And in so doing, postmodernity well, so gives we birth can get into, into time and being <laughs> modernity itself. Yeah, we can we can go into how Dugan regards time, because he seems to think that you almost will this cyclical time into being. Well, I'm pretty sure he did. It. That's what he does think. <laughs> I yeah, think that's yeah. exactly what he well, thinks. When I say I, th- <laughs> when I say I think, it's because a lot of this book is fairly unclear when it gets more metaphysical. Yeah, no, I think he. Well, yeah, again, that's the same qualifier. <laughs> what I deciphered with the time <laughs> stuff is he actually uh, did, in fact, he was saying that a culture could control time, especially essentially, like the linearity or cyclical mm-hmm. nature of time within. So I, I wrote in my book, Chronological Relativism. <laughs> that's how deep his... his, yeah. uh, his and conversely, his, you destroy time if you're a postmodernist. His, his ethno... Um, relativism is so deep it goes all the way down to time (laughs) (laughs) he's a physical relativist (laughs) yeah which i think if you believe in that sort of stuff like you're just living in in like a fucking nutcase of a universe if you think that like entire ethnicities can like manipulate time and space independently of one another and then like their physical bodies interact but their timelines are like disjointed that you're, you're just a fucking crazy person. And the fact that this guy was advising to people in the Kremlin is just a sign that, like, those people who are being advised to got very, very, very bad advice. <laughs> I mean, considering how badly the Russian military has fucked the war in Ukraine, uh, that might say something about the quality of the advice they've been getting. I mean, the, the, when I was thinking about it, <clears throat> as I was reading his book... <clears throat> I thought, okay, how influential is Dugan in Russian politics? Uh, you know, some people think he's more influential than others. Just sort of like depends. Maybe he's a little bit more influential 10 or 15 years ago. But I, was, I thought the more influence this particular person had, the more, uh, the more like degenerate the capacity the intellectual capacity of whoever he was advising <laughs> like this 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 sort of philosophy makes people dumb because the ideas are just so bad yeah it's sort of like hooking up the sewage system to your drinking water and saying it tastes great <laughs> the, the more of it you're getting the more shit you're drinking yeah, so in a, uh, in a weird way, I was a little bit like, I, I hope he's had a big... I was <laughs> self-motivated into kind of hoping that he's had a bigger influence. <laughs> no, I hope he has a small influence because I'd much prefer it if Russia were... Yeah, especially given where country, I live, that, that Russia country. were more a, a, a country led by more sensible people. Yeah, true. I'm being, I'm being too short-sighted there. High time preference, motherfucker. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I'm inclined to... My, You've gotten the better of me, Jack. <laughs> I'm inclined to agree. Like, li- living in Czech Republic, it's great <laughs> that again, the I'm Germans not right next to are Russia. now <laughs> behaving themselves. Now all, all 
that needs to happen is for Russians to start behaving themselves. That is true. I'm not sandwiched between Russia and Germany. <laughs> there's, there's a reason why this part of the world's been just That's a bad habit of getting occupied. bombed into the ground historically, <laughs> that part of the world. Yeah, it's a pretty Invaded. bad neighbourhood, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, fair enough. I can see why you'd be more interested in, in, in Vlad being a little more sensible. <laughs> I won't egg on Dugan. Just reach out to him on Twitter like, hey, mate, write another book. <laughs> I love you, work man. Want to come on the podcast? <laughs> So, what I was saying earlier about what the fourth political theory is, is it's not actually a defined theory yet. What this entire book is, is Dugan providing, first, the motivation for coming up with a fourth political theory, so a theory that transcends the, mod- the three modernist theories, and particularly one that will overthrow liberalism and post-liberalism. And he sketches out aspects of this this new ideology or post-ideology that that are important to have and are necessary and will allow it both to overthrow liberalism or post-liberalism and institute something totally new in its place. That's the, that's the book. It, it really is to provide, to provide people who will later come up with the fourth political theory with an intellectual framework with which they can do that. And I've made a list of things that are to be features of the fourth political theory. And maybe we can, to an extent, use that as a, as a structure for this episode. But before we go into the features of the fourth political theory, we should probably describe his motivations for wanting a fourth political theory in the first place, particularly his issues with liberalism, with the unipolar American-led world order, and things like that. To you, I imagine our audience is pretty well acquainted with with liberalism. Dugan certainly takes the least charitable view of liberalism possible to the point where I'm not sure he truly understands liberalism and certainly doesn't understand what life is like in the West. That was a fairly glaring error. Do you think he potentially hasn't actually spent that much time outside of Russia? I'm not sure. I don't I don't know what his his travel no, plans no I wouldn't expect past. it. Would surprise I suppose. me That's if he'd reasonable question, left. Jack. Why don't you have the man's fucking uh, <clears throat> schedules, <laughs> calendar? Like, know about which country he's been to, favorite foods. Come on, man. <laughs> Given that he is part of, or he's he's linked with groups in Europe, say anti-EU groups, anti-Atlanticist groups. It wouldn't surprise me if he'd given talks within the EU, but I'm not sure. How about we describe the the situation that Dugan says we're currently in and hence why we need to develop a fourth political theory because he has a fairly... what his, his definition of liberalism versus post-liberalism, modernity versus post-modernity, tends to be fairly stable. Unlike some of his other definitions in this book, that one actually tends to stand still. So what he says is that modernity this post-Enlightenment time has been dominated dominated by three ideologies predominantly, and this really came to a head in the 20th century, which he says was the century of, of ideology, in that it was this, instead of people's lives being governed by race, caste, ethnos, nationality, by feudal estates, land rights, things like that, instead it was these land agnostic, ethnos agnostic ideologies that spread over the world 
in the 20th century and really defined people's experiences during that time. Of, uh, what do you think of that idea? I thought that was an interesting idea. I think it's an interesting idea, but it's not as cut and dry as that. No, 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 obviously not. Because, you know, like a, a lot of them, the, the you know, the First World War, for example, is like almost uh, empires. And then uh, the Second World War, mm -hmm. more being about like nation states. Uh, <clears throat> but then... Or ideology. I do think ideology had a bigger role to play in this, the Second World War. Oh, yeah, for sure. But I was just saying, like, those nation states, like, uh, were aligned on, not, not entirely, fairly well aligned on uh, <clears throat> ideologically, except I suppose the Russians, hey, being a part of the... Well, it's Allies. a lot more complex than that, <laughs> yeah. because, for example, Dugan doesn't quite bring this up, that... Initially, the Nazis and the, the communists in Russia cooperated. Like, the, Poland yeah. wasn't divided between, yeah. say, a liberal group and, and fascists. It was divided between Nazi Germany and communist Russia. Yeah. They, I think it was the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact where they agreed to divide up Poland. It wasn't as straightforward as Dugan makes it out to be, but it is an interesting starting point for thinking of perhaps a more historically accurate description of the 20th century where ideologies were more important in that century than they had been previously. I guess, I guess what, what, like, uh, there's, like, a nation-state identity in itself is an ideology. Mm -hmm. But that I guess what I was interpreting his use of the word ideology is kind of like these, uh, these ideologies that transcended, like, group affiliations. So whether it's tribal yeah. or ethnos or, like, nation-state, there was something of, like, being a liberal, oh, well, the UK is liberal, Australia's liberal, the United States is liberal, you know. <clears throat> um, Interestingly, though, yeah. and we'll get into his view of relativism later in the episode because it's really important, I'm not sure how this sits beside his cultural relativism and his almost, it's almost like Oswald Spengler his view that different cultures and civilizations can never truly understand each other and can never truly use the products of each other's thought. If that is the case, and he regularly talks about how liberalism is, it's not merely Western European, but it's Anglo-Saxon, and therefore it's something that fundamentally can't be understood by other, other groups, by another ethnos, in and that case, I'm not sure actually Russia how ideologies would spread because wouldn't you then say wherever the ideology was first conceived of, that's the only ethnos that can actually understand it and the only place where it can really be an organising principle, where it can be truly implemented. This yeah, is the first of a very large number of inconsistencies in Dugan's thought. Maybe he does clarify this in other books. Maybe the translation makes it harder to understand how this is resolved maybe i'm just dumb but at least in my reading his idea of ideology as something that can sit above nation or ac across different affiliations and his idea of almost ethnos exclusivity they those two things don't sit with each other 
No, well, I, I think there's lots of inconsistencies in the book, but <laughs> that's one <laughs> yeah, fairly very, very large important one <laughs> to, to make note of. <laughs> um, yeah, so I anyway, did 20th you get century, a sense of why in particular he doesn't like liberalism? He, I think he doesn't just, like liberalism because the United States is the big kid on the block and he wants Russia to be the big kid on the block and the United States is a liberal country and therefore he doesn't like it. This, this is a, a very uncharitable interpretation, but I think it's a lot of motivated reasoning because he wishes Russia were more powerful. So he, with liberalism... Once the Soviet Union fell in, was it 91? I think it was 91 Mm. when it it completely fell apart. You'd had revolutions before that of satellite states and also states that were formerly part of the Soviet Union. But Mm. the Soviet Union itself fell. Russian communism fell in 91. And Dugan says when this happened, liberalism became unopposed. And in becoming unopposed, it moved from being an ideology. So... In theory, during the 20th century, you could choose between different ideologies. You had these three options available to you. Not as straightforward as he makes it out to be, but I guess you could say, okay, in, your, in the interiority of your mind, if you were living in Nazi Germany, you could be a communist. You just couldn't, couldn't tell anyone or you'd be killed. But he yeah. said with the fall of the Soviet Union, with the fall of the communist counterweight to Western liberalism... Liberalism became the only option available to you. And again, well, is, an, is another problem that if you acknowledge that within your mind you could be a communist within liberalism, a liberal country in the 20th century, you could be a fascist within the Soviet Union in your mind in the 20th century, why can't you just be a fascist or a communist in your mind during the 21st century when apparently liberalism is so dominant that it has become universal, a lifestyle. It's moved from an ideology to a post-ideology because it's no longer a system of thought, but it's a mode of being, something so absolute because it's unopposed. I don't understand how this transition between liberalism in the 20th century and 21st century post-liberalism without any ideological opponent really occurs no well he, just, it's, it's an interesting idea but i don't understand the mechanism. the mechanism he doesn't he doesn't actually explain he just says that that is the case um yeah without actually the, yeah explaining further and one of the things is like it like in a liberal country it depends which country exactly uh with some caveats on what i'm about to say but you can just be a marxist if you want in Australia, there's plenty of Marxists. Uh, yeah. And uh, you can be a fascist as well. I mean, you might, won't make many friends, but you're legally allowed to be. And uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, whereas in Nazi Germany, you weren't legally allowed to be a communist. <laughs> and you know what? Also, there were times when uh, like America strayed away from like the core foundational philosophical views of liberalism, like in the McCarthy era, or when they were like outlawing mm-hmm. or quasi outlawing Marxism. And uh, they were wrong to do that, and I'm glad they don't do that anymore. But <clears throat> fundamentally, like liberal countries, and this fight, I don't think he really, he either is just creating complete strawman, and this is just like Russian propaganda is supposed to be fed to like 
Russian university students and stuff who haven't been exposed to the outside world yet, or he just doesn't understand liberalism? I think it's a more fundamental problem than not understanding liberalism. I take issue with his fundamental thesis that having defeated the, like, in, in his mind, only other two possible modes of political thought, communism and fascism, apart from, yeah, apart from those, there is, there is no space like in the space of human ideas other than these three political theories if you are born in the 20th or 21st centuries, you cannot believe anything else. There's like, a, even just there's that a, point, I think, that's, that's bullshit. Like, you can, you can believe... The, the, the space of ideas is want. a lot bigger than those <laughs> things. The space of ideas that are true, or at least bear some sort of correspondence to a reality outside of humans, is narrower. But, like, you can believe all sorts of stuff. Potentially infinite space. Uh, no, well, potentially or actually is infinite. No, no, it is an infinite space. Yeah, there's an infinite space of ideas. And, uh, and a whole bunch of them are expressed on this planet. And during the 20th century, a whole bunch of them were expressed. Like there were, uh, for example, <clears throat> it probably doesn't get much historical attention outside of <laughs> the things that I'm exposed to, except there's this whole like philosophical movement of decolonization throughout the 20th century amongst uh, African peoples mm. and First Nations people around the world. And that's taken many different forms. Uh, some of them worked out pretty bad in certain parts of Africa. Some of them, like more contemporary ones that are going on now in like Australia and uh, Canada are more about like reforming the relationship between the indigenous peoples and the sort of post-colonial nation state. And that entire philosophical movement Effects. There's like 400 million First Nations people around the world. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. So he's just wrong about that. It's just not the case. But maybe if I just caveat which with it, caveat everything that I'm saying with he's speaking in probably a very um, uh, superpowers sort of context. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't care that there's some, like, I don't know, Balinese person who's just trying to, like, recapitulate the, um, you know, animism that, I don't know, the, the, the spirit of the waterfall or something. Like, he's not considering them. <laughs> okay, so I'll, I'll steal Man Dugan. I'll put on my, my Dugan yeah, shopka now. So in the context of, okay, so say decolonialisation in the Australian context, could you say that that's... That's ultimately taking place within a liberal context. So it's, it's an aspect of liberalism. So you're still operating within that ideological framework of liberalism. Uh, no, some parts of it are like fairly, um, like fairly anti-Western. Like, and it depends, you know, obviously who you ask and stuff. But some of it is, as, uh, to use the, um, the language of Popper, um, is closed society philosophies. It's just close society mm. philosophy from like a, you know, like an Aboriginal Australian perspective or like, a, you know, uh, a Maori perspective. Um, and it's, it's basically like <clears throat> just in my cult, like exposure to different cultures, including First Nations cultures, and then obviously like Europeans and, and stuff reading of Popper. <clears throat> it's like a, this line between an open and closed society and the sort of ideas that are floating around to defend the open society or you either have like the defense of the open society or you have some 
justification for why the society should not be open. And that justification can take essentially any form. In the uh, European context last, last century, it was particularly around Marxism and fascism. And this is why I don't think he actually understands what he's talking about, because Japanese imperialism um, last century is also a close society like philosophy and it had a big impact on the war <laughs> uh but it wasn't based on marxism or fascism it's based on a different justification for having a close society yeah i'm glad that you just said more or less what i believe in response to my dugan steel man but having said that he if if i just constrain what he's saying to basically Russia versus Europe slash NATO and so like to include the US in there then maybe I can just be very generous with he's just talking about this like thing that's really affected Europe in the last hundred years yeah so after after the fall of the Soviet Union you have this situation where liberalism is the only game in town and he says the individual became the normative subject within the framework of all mankind and we'll get into his idea of normative subjects or historical subjects. Maybe we should explain that first. Pretty cause shortly, because that's really important. I think that's but super important. He says that once, once liberalism won, it rapidly... It's not total, but it's on the way there. It, like, monopolised it the subject. Yeah. Instead of becoming a choice or even seen as a choice, it became seen as a universal and... The United States as the yeah. centre of this, this empire, with Europe as its periphery, started trying to dominate the entire world and bring the entire world within this ideological framework where universal human rights become a thing, globalism becomes a thing. It becomes the assumed system for everyone, whether they wish to participate or not. And I think this... This is not wholly true, but this definitely has elements of truth. So, one that's place where best, I do think Dugan falls down is in that thinking <laughs> that liberalism hasn't always actually been like this. Liberalism from the start has been quite a crusading ideology. This belief that, so from John Locke, he, God has makers right on human beings. God made human beings, therefore human beings can't own each other can't force each other to do certain things because humans are God's property and you can't, you can't infringe on other people's property rights in that way, even God's. And that implication is because people thought that Christianity was also universal, that this maker's right is universal. It applies to all human beings. So Dugan's making out that liberalism only started to regard itself as universal when it became post-liberalism once the United States or NATO more broadly defeated the Soviet Union, I think it's always had those crusading elements of needing to spread itself to non-believers. It's always been animated by a sort of religious fervour, I think in large part because, at least initially, it was very consciously based on Christianity and its ethics are still Christian. It's just the sort of Reddit atheists who dominate university discourse at the moment now <laughs> deny that it has anything to do with Christianity, despite still largely hewing to Christian ethics. I guess uh, 
so what I'd like to sort of unpack is his idea of um, what the subject is in history, and and then com- and then compare the three subjects from the three previous ideologies. Or did you have an alternative? Um, yeah, I mean, we should still probably define what post-modernity is because it underpins everything. Like that he's, he's saying that liberalism has undergone a fundamental change once it became the only possible ideology and is globalising and has reached a stage where it's inexorably taking over the world, it's destroying politics and destroying time and hardening into something that can't be fought against within the context of, of politics as we currently have them. So do you want to talk about the three preceding political theories before the birth of the fourth? Yeah, and they're the obvious ones, um, given, <laughs> given that it's a, a Russian geopolitical commentator. <laughs> it's, uh, it's fascism. And he makes a distinction between, uh, well, I'll come back to that in a tick, fascism, Marxism, and liberalism. Um, and he might say like neoliberalism in particular, potentially. Um, so fascism, uh, well, firstly, liberalism, he calls the first one. Then was it fascism was the second one, I think. Um, and communism is the second. Third. Oh, so communism is the is the second and fascism is, is the third. Yeah. Um, they each have like different ideological structures. One of the main components of sort of the each of the structures is like what's the focal point or what's kind of the um he calls it the the subject but the kind of the guiding focal point of analysis both um both in terms of their descriptions of the world or especially the political world but also 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 like um ethically um or yeah politically um and he gives he gives a, he gives an interesting he's like well the second and third uh, ideologies uh, were opposed to liberalism so that's good so let's try and like fish out the good stuff from them <laughs> and like discard some of the bad stuff and I was like hmm interesting how's he going to do that <laughs> um, and. And yes, and did you did you have it? Did you want to add anything? Yeah, he. So his main way of describing the three political theories is by describing the historical subject in each. The historical subject being the the human being or the state of being for a person within these ideologies, and from that the ideology comes. So in the case of liberalism, the historical subject is the individual. And an individual as something that defines itself as apart from race, class, caste, and the internal logic of having the individual as the historical subject means that liberalism seeks to free itself, or the individual seeks to free itself from all external controls. Hence the, um, the antinomian trajectory of liberal societies that he observes, where there's a gradual overcoming of, say, things that are seen to be sacred if they entail a restriction on an individual. And then he says that this, inter- this internal logic leads inevitably to post-modernity, 
where the individual seeks to overcome themselves or throw off themselves as a limitation, which, which leads to this undifferentiated mass that he says is the state of the world today. Communism had the, the class as the historical subject, and a person was only really contextualised within a class, or you could only understand them once you'd situated them within a class, whether that's within the bourgeois class, within the proletariat, and things like that. Fascism's interesting in that he, the historical subject could be different depending on the particular fascist society. So broadly speaking, he sees fascism as a totalitarianism which turns towards the symbols or ideas of a traditional society. And in the case of Nazi Germany, the historical subject was the race, the Aryan race. Within the context of Italian fascism, it was a state based on traditional forms. They, they, they liked calling back to Rome quite often. They call it the spirit of the people. And so the state, the spirit of the people. Yeah, yeah. the, the project, the of one of the main... Yeah, one of the main aspects of the fourth political theory is to come up with a historical subject for the fourth political theory. Because once you've come up with that subject, that's going to allow you to think through a lot of the features of the fourth political theory. And so, did you he, get the sense he, that he sees it as Dasein, as Heidegger's Dasein is um, a candidate I, 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 of a historical subject for the fourth political theory? If I'm mistaken but i almost got the sense that he thought this was almost like a incantation <laughs> like um he, he made this one interesting point he, he says like uh the fourth political theory will, will be an ontological structure based on existential anthropology and um yeah and it's it sounded as in as if what he was saying, and I could almost like kind of bend my mind to try to understand to kind of see what he's getting at. He's like, um, if you think that if you follow something like the explanation of culture in terms of like the the meme explanation that like ideas are abstract constructors that compete um, for replication within a human population, something like that, then like. It is weirdly true that if somebody comes up with an ideology and then puts it out into the world, if that ideology is able to compete against other replicators, idea replicators, then like in a weird way, not, not to <coughs> sort of uh, say that they're alive in an organic sense, but they sort of have this autonomy of their own. And like, for example, like Marx doesn't like know what how his uh theories impacted say like cambodians or whatever he couldn't have predicted that but it 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 is in fact he is part of the causal chain of like why they were killing fields in cambodia last century um <laughs> and so it weirdly enough i yeah, kind yeah. not I, not exactly that i agree with him that it, he he his theory is an ontological structure but in him like putting these ideas out there he's potentially Trying to invoke something to come into existence, invoke an idea to be to be. The spawned. way I saw it was that 
Yeah, he seems to see... Hmm. Maybe we'll be half steelmanning him here. So he seems to see ideologies or worldviews from a very, very subjective perspective. So from mm. the perspective of mm. Mm. the yeah, subject who comes to believe in, say, liberalism versus Nazism, the way you interpret sensory mm. experience, that explanatory model you're overlaying on the world or just on the sense information you're getting from the world is different and you're going to process that information differently. And because he's, he's very much a fan of Heidegger, of Husserl, and as such, I guess you could say, okay, since you're changing people's experience of the world, that in some sense entails an ontological transformation. So their they're being, given that their phenomenology is so different, is therefore changed. I don't subscribe to that myself, but I think that's what he's getting at. Yeah, that would make sense. And so he's obsessed with phenomenology. You know, Heidegger is a phenom- phenomenal- phenomenologist, right? And Hessel. Uh, so I guess that makes sense. I also say this as someone who has minimal knowledge of, of Heidegger and Husserl. So I could be and probably am wrong, but I think a lot of his, his talking about an ontologically based fourth political theory is from that feeling of yes. the subjectivity really giving rise to, to someone's being or it being really inextricably linked to someone's being. I I I'd be inclined I, I think uh that's a that's a reasonable interpretation. I'm going to just caveat everything that I say with like <clears throat> I find this stuff uh not not my uh usual sort of reading and uh the background knowledge about the references to phenomenological philosophers and existential philosophers and a whole bunch of um French and Russian intellectuals was uh I would say outside of my normal wheelhouse <laughs> of ideas to grapple <laughs> foreign. with. Foreign. Yes, extremely foreign. <laughs> so I might be misrepresenting what he's saying <laughs> at, at any, at any yeah, particular he, point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, the same goes for me. <laughs> it is, so he, because he says that post-modernity, so this overthrowing, this individual under liberalism, which was modernity, which seeks to overthrow all external impediments to it expressing its own individuality, inevitably giving rise to post, post-modernity and post-liberalism, wherein this individual seeks to overthrow itself and becomes a post-individual, or he sometimes calls it a dividual as opposed to an individual. <laughs> and he, he traces this back to Plato and Heraclitus, yeah. And the um the centrality of logos to to western philosophy, the centrality of uh of of rationality which like as a criticism of this means that does this well does this mean that his book is not applicable to non-european slash european adjacent civilizations because he says that in Plato Plato put ideas between humans in existence, mm. 
So there's this idea that the Logos is this thing separate to humanity, this structure, he sees it as fundamentally masculine, and it gets really Evolian when he's talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> this, uh, this, this thing that excludes and orders, or this fundamental ordering impulse, as opposed to chaos, which is feminine and is an all-encompassing impulse. And it was people like Heraclitus, and particularly Plato, identified all external reality with that with logos and things things in our sense perception are true insofar as they correspond to that external logos and he says that this is the fundamental seed of what's caused the degeneration of our of our ontology in modern society he traces it all the way back to plato he says that without without chaos which is constantly renewing itself Logos begins to degenerate. He just he just says this like you just have to take his word for it, I guess. And having said that, given that we've rejected this self-renewing chaos, we start to get alienated from from everything, and we develop calculating thinking, which is this purely rational type of thinking and lose sight of pure being because we're no longer living in living truly in the moment we're living with this technological or rational apparatus sitting between ourselves and our being so we're interpreting our being through the lens of this rationality and this is this is uh, made concrete in our pursuit of technology so technology is an addition it's this externalization of this rational form of thinking that itself comes to shape even further how we think and how we experience the world, further separating us from being. And he calls this nihilism. We're just getting more and more and more nihilistic and alienated to the point where we, we become post-individuals and seek to overthrow that very individuality that inevitably, I think he's seeming to say, stemmed from Plato, and that leads to post-modernity. It gets pretty weird, and I just... This is, an, this is a classic example of the why philosophy, where you just say, well, why? <laughs> and it stops working. So do you think that uh, it's... Hmm. I, I, I not exactly agreed with him, but I saw what he was saying in terms of... Um, Western civilization's uh, centering of the individual. I guess what I was trying to do is think through, like, is it... How, how would I put it? Is it that we think of, like... Um, you know, like, in Italian fascism, there was this thing, the state. And um, in Hegelian philosophy, there was this thing of the Geist, the animating spirit. And with uh, mm -hmm. German fascism, it was the race. Um, whereas, like, I, maybe it's because I haven't read broadly enough. Maybe you'd be able to speak to it better than me, since you might be a bit better read with the sort of more classical liberal philosophers. But I always thought about, like, not so much with liberalism being about the individual in, like, a direct correspondence with this other sort of, like, 
metastructure like the class or the race. But I always thought of it as more like each individual. <laughs> and so like there's specific concrete individuals in each circumstance. And the reason why we don't use collectivizing like language or ideas is because those things blur you seeing each particular concrete specific individual. <laughs> and so it is like when you talk about like individual rights for whatever, I'm not sort of predicated. Well, at least I didn't think so. Maybe I am in the background, like predicating on like some sort of uh, something analogous to like the class, like an entity, an ideological entity called the individual. Although maybe for shorthand, people use that. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I think at least in Dugan land, he'd probably say that that's because you're a liberal, that you you instinctively view society or view the world as a, as a composition of individuals rather than a composition of classes. Or class or whatever. Hmm. Or, yeah, or say Nazi Germany, a, a composition of races. I guess because the reason why I think this is an important point is because these philosophies... Uh, uh, they are, are invoking these um, these entities like the race of the class or Dasein as like entities that um, have causal power um, through through well like what's the phrase on the stage of history <laughs> or um, the logic of history like they're contributing to like the historical political processes and it's like this entity as such is having this whereas I guess what I'm saying is like there there is none of that. <laughs> Those things don't exist. <laughs> There's individuals and they have ideas and they can form collectives, uh, but there isn't like the individual. <laughs> but again, yeah, maybe I'm just a fucking liberal norm tard. <laughs> Doesn't understand anything about anything. Yeah, I guess to steel man him, you could you could say that the individual that while while there is say, physical instantiations of different human beings. Like there are, there are two humans who operate, who occupy different positions in space. Their, their fundamental worldview through which they generate ideas and through which they act are informed by different things. And so the liberal individual is animated by this principle of freedom from. Yes. So freedom from the, say, in... Oh, like if you're talking about Hayek, like the arbitrary imposition of someone else's will, the arbitrary coercion of another person. You have freedom from that. Whereas an individual under Marxism, their way of viewing the world and of coming up with ideas is based upon their knowledge or their understanding of themselves as part of a class or an expression of a class as opposed to a, a purely autonomous actor who acts to be free from influence like i guess that's a way you can maybe i guess so. think of this so like the, the problem like all conceptual systems ultimately are going to have some distortion they're going yeah. to have yeah. even in the best case scenario like there, there's going to be a gap between them and whatever is actually external to us yeah yeah, yeah for sure so having having sort but, of, uh, unpacked that a fair bit should we uh talk about uh, the subject of the fourth <laughs> political theory, because <laughs> that's probably much yeah, more like yeah. uh, new 
new ideas that he's proposing as opposed to or not necessarily new ideas but like like substantive part rather than him just criticizing these previous ideologies when he starts like proposing a new idea um his first hint of it is uh he has this idea of um like the imagination so i might just read a quote because um i found this part really really interesting well, actually, you know what? Actually, instead of going that, should we should we talk about the four hypotheses? Uh, which of those? He had these four hypotheses about the fourth political. Do you remember this? Like the compound subject, so the subject is not going to be like an, the individual or a class or whatever. It's going to be like some compound thing. The phenomenological standpoint. So he's like, so we're going to work from phenomenology as our like base lens on this problem. Three Dasein hypothesis and four Lemaginationaire. Oh, he he comes up. So through this book, he talks about how, in some points, he seems to hint that he's undecided as to the historical subject of the fourth political theory. But then in most of the book, he acts as if he's already decided that it's Dasein. Or or maybe that it's like. So I think I remember the section you're talking about where he says, okay, well, the historical subject could be a blend of different historical subjects as found in other political theories or it could be Dasein or it could be it could be something of the imagination which exists anteriorly to rationality and things like that Mm. but having said all this he from then on without having said explicitly just kind of acts as if Dasein is to be the historical subject yeah or unless like uh, whatever particular characteristics Darzine takes on, he's uh, he's trying to account for uh, variations <laughs> um, without like oh, he's, he is pretty committal at certain points. Like he seems to know what Darzine wants, <laughs> even though yeah yeah. yeah. Hmm. I'm pretty sure he's just saying that there's the design. <laughs> yeah. And as like a, this definition of Dasein is going to be pretty poor because I don't know a great deal about Heidegger, but basically Dasein is Heidegger. <laughs> you haven't done a PhD Heidegger in Heidegger, split, <laughs> Yeah. Heidegger split the definition of existence into a bunch of different words because he felt that the single word existence really didn't capture what was, what was important or less existence, more being in English. So he distinguished between, for example, pure being and a being in the world. He, he saw those as two different things that should be described using different terms. And Dasein means, in German, it, I think it literally means being there. And so it's a, it's a being in the world which is uncovering itself. And he used Dasein to replace these ideas like consciousness and mind. Instead of having these things, he has Dasein, which is this being aware of its own being in the world, which is constantly uncovering this project that it has and constantly striving towards that. It's a, it's a type of being which is quite directional. It's constantly directing towards itself towards some sort of project and in death i think there is the possibility for the realization or the capture of that project 
And is it correct to say that that but is like a, an actual thing is what they're proposing? Is it like a separate... I don't understand this concept. <laughs> no, I don't really either. <laughs> Does Darzine is like a ghost or is it, is, is it more like, is it uh, something else? <laughs> I saw it as this, as basically an existence or an, an extant being's self-awareness of itself as an extant being, which has just been thrown into existence. And that could include humans and, or dogs or some other, like, some other yeah. entity. Hmm. Yeah. I'd expect so. I mean, I, I don't know Heidegger's view of, of canine Dasein, but <laughs> I assume that, yeah, they, they would also have a sense of Dasein as far as they're self-aware. Yeah, it's interesting. But situating Dasein as the historical subject, he says that... It doesn't really help that much. It exists it? anteriorly to all sorts of divisions that that a mind that's been conditioned to view the world in terms of those divisions would hold to be self-evident. So, for example, he talks about gender in the fourth political theory, and he says that he has this long thing where he starts really sounding like a social justice warrior <laughs> talking about how he goes after liberalism for being fundamentally patriarchal and uh, the, the idea of a normative gender in liberalism entails... A, a white, rational, adult, bourgeois male, and he calls that gender, and he says that all apparent advances in gender equality in liberal society really consist of making women into this normative liberal gender, the male gender, so they're not true advancements. And he t then says, if the, if the historical subject is Dasein, well, Dasein exists before male and female have been established as a duality. It's this experience of self-aware existence or being before that. It's at a deeper level of existence. Therefore, the gender of the fourth political theory is the radical subject. It's this undivided subject, anterior to gender. He... Uh, he <laughs> He starts going all sorts of wacky places with um with Darzine as the historical subject. Hmm. 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 He does do this interesting thing actually, which I quite liked. He calls it breaking the hermeneutic circle. And he uses this as one of the methodologies with which to find positive aspects of the fourth political theory. So he Breaking the hermeneutic circle. So basically, hermeneutics is basically the study of representation or a way of analysing representation. And his concept of breaking the hermeneutic circle is to take an ideology, for example, fascism or communism, and to break its fundamental system of representing the world to, in his words, decontaminate it. So he takes fascism or Nazism, for example, and says, okay, so what's, what's its foundational explanatory principle, almost? And it's, okay, so you've got a master race whose, whose goal is to dominate lesser races. And he says, okay, you take that out. You take out that fundamental aspect of its hermeneutical model, of its way of representing and in doing so, you've broken fascism's hermeneutic circle. So instead of being this 
unified mode of thought. Now it's just a collection of disparate thoughts that are no longer unified by this hermeneutical principle. And from that, you can take useful components that you think will allow the fourth political theory to overcome liberalism and institute a better world, I guess. Yeah, and he even does so this I found liberalism. That, I found that pretty interesting. That was... I, this was in the part of the book that I found interesting and I was hopeful that yeah. it would... The rest, I was hopeful that after sort of this chapter, I think I'm saying like chapter two or something, that the rest of the book would be like more direct, cogent attacks on <laughs> philosophy. Yeah, and I was I was in the same boat. I was feeling optimistic <laughs> at this point, and and then he just didn't do that. He just went off the fucking deep. He end. He went off the fucking deep end, talking about like that sign. And, and history and, and historical development and like misunderstanding evolution and thermodynamics and stuff. And I was like, wait, no, go back to the like the thing that you were doing before. Like that was interesting. <laughs> yes, like I yes. might not have agreed with you, but at least it was interesting. This is just fucking batshit. <laughs> yeah, and it is interesting. So this does lead into another purple-haired Alexander Dugan as SJW <laughs> section. Because he does... The, 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 the university campus wokeism to Alexander Dugan Russian supremacism pipeline is very real. <laughs> and part of that is through... So in decontaminating fascism or, or Nazism, in breaking its hermeneutic circle, he comes to a discussion of racism. And he mm. says that... In the fourth political theory, it is necessary to reject all forms of racism. And when he was talking about this, I thought, okay, this sounds like this sounds like something I could get on board with. But then I realized what his definition of racism was, and it is it is so hilariously broad that it really becomes meaningless. Where he starts out by saying, okay, so Hitler's racism was actually the the thing which ultimately led to the failure of fascism. And as an aside, part of the reason why he's saying we need to break the hermeneutical circles of fascism and communism is because both of those ultimately proved themselves unable to overcome liberalism, which I thought was an interesting idea. That, okay, you can't run these two ideologies because liberalism has proven itself basically more evolutionarily fit than these two. Mm-hmm. It outcompeted them. Mm. But in constructing something new, you take take things from them. And so he said Hitler's racism led Hitler to do things like oppress Slavs, which I'm sure Alexander Dugan, as a Slavic man, has no motivated reasoning in believing. He says it made Hitler underestimate the strength of Russia and invade, which ultimately led to the downfall of the Nazi war machine. So he views the racism of Nazism as really the element of it which destroyed it. From that, he says, there can be no racism in the fourth political theory. But <laughs> he, he, goes out, he goes into cuckoo town. So I quote, Hitler's racism, however, is only one form of racism. This type of racism is the most obvious, straightforward, biological, and therefore the most repulsive. There are other forms of racism, cultural racism, asserting that there are high and low cultures, civilizational, 
dividing people into those civilised and those insufficiently civilised, technological, viewing technological development as the main criterion of societal value, social, stating in the spirit of the, in the, spirit of the Protestant doctrine of, the, of predestination that the rich are the best and the greatest as compared to the poor, economic racism, based on which all humanity is ranked according to regions of material well-being, and evolutionary racism, for which it is axiomatic that human society is the result of biological development, in which the basic processes of evolution of the species, survival of the fittest, natural selection, etc., continue today. The European and American society is fundamentally afflicted with this type of racism, unable to eradicate it from itself despite all the effort. Fully aware of how revolting this phenomenon is, people in the West tend to make racism a taboo. However, all this turns into a witch hunt, New pariahs accused of fascism are its victims, often for no apparent reason. Thus, this very political correctness and its norms are transformed into a totalitarian discipline of political, purely racist exclusions. I also would like another quote about how everything is racist. So, the newest types of racism are glamour, fashion, and following the latest <laughs> informational trends. Yeah. The norms are set by models, designers, party socialites, and the owners of the latest version of mobile phones or laptop computers. <laughs> conformity or non-conformity with the glamour code is located at the very base of the mass strategies for social segregation and cultural apartheid. Today, this is not associated directly with the economic factor, but is gradually gaining independent sociological features. This is the ghost of the glamour dictatorship, <laughs> the new generation of racism. So, in <laughs> describing these really things, funny. he describes a bunch of forms of discrimination, which, so, for example, ranking different societies as civilised or uncivilised, uh, viewing technological development as the only criterion of social value, ranking the actual almost moral worth or the, the fundamental worthwhileness of different cultures or societies on the basis of how much money they have, I don't like those things. But I don't think those are forms of racism. No, <laughs> I think those I think are different forms of discrimination. I, I went, after reading that for a bit, I was like, oh, what he's doing is he's saying is discrimination, basically. He's just, he's just hijacked the word racism because uh, yeah. these sorts of... This is where uh, I think he's being pretty... Uh, like to do that sort of thing. Yeah, I think he's just arguing in bad faith here because he yeah. knows that Westerners don't like being called racist. Yeah. And probably, like, I mean, I'm assuming this is written for, well, it was written in Russian, a Russian audience. So yes. part of it, I think, might be that, oh, we're going to own the Westerners and show that actually they're really racist by basically defining racism so widely that everything the West does is racist. Yeah. This part was funny because if if this were published in, I don't know, like whatever rag the socialist alternative in Australia is putting out, then no one would blink. Yeah, I But you know, I also don't take it very uh, seriously. Book, uh, cynical theories. Is it was it cynical theories or another book that's like uh there were those scientists who sent sent in like uh you know, a um postmodern analysis of quantum theory or something or gender gender theoretic analysis of <laughs> i don't know like einstein's relativity or something like that they sent it into whatever oh, um, I'm fucking um 
was it something hoax? And they sent they sent it into like some shitty fucking um humanities oh, journal was this? and they actually published it and it was a fucking these these science these oh, this, this was, was um, taking the piss. <laughs> two two physicists published a paper called something like the conceptual penis. Yes, that's right. <laughs> which was it was word salad. I yeah, read through yeah, it and it was right. basically it seemed to be arguing against the physical existence of the penis and saying that it was a purely, purely conceptual societal conceptual construct. Conceptual construct yeah. And, yeah, it, it was just written as a joke and it was published. Yeah, it was published. We should actually read that for, that, yeah, for this podcast because that, that. That, that was a god-tier troll. That's actually a good one like, for sure. An unbelievable troll. So good. We, actually, we should put that on the, uh, on the schedule as, like, a, a short episode that wouldn't take much. A short one, yeah. Yeah, yeah we should read that. Um, also because it's... We it's could almost intense, like read, actually we might have to read it live if it's short enough. Yeah, let's have it's a look. Like, the, it's only like ten pages or something. It'll be hard to read because they they mimic the turgid prose of a lot of social <laughs> science papers perfectly. But I guess so we can just, we can read it without impenetrable to, 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 without trying to actually understand it. You know, like <laughs> yes, because it's, it's not meant to be understood. <laughs> No, no. The, the the point of the article is that it cannot be understood. It was a brilliant troll. Fantastic troll. Anyways. I'm trying to remember. Sorry. I think we read it when it came out. I think Ed sent it to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Around the time it came out and we laughed at it. We're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like university departments are just going backwards. And then, yeah, it turned out to have been a troll. <laughs> so good. I love that they actually got published. And it was like a major, at least for the, whatever the discipline was, it was like an important journal. Yeah, it uh, it speaks very highly of the peer review process, that people looked at that pile of shit and went, yeah, mm. yeah, I want to I wanna put my name against this. I'm countersigning on this. <laughs> this is the good shit. And they thought they, they Society will be better like, for this yeah, having been really put out. Because these are physicists and even physicists are saying this. It's fucking, yeah. <laughs> um, or maybe, no, yeah. or did they but do I mean, it when you consider the normal, Maybe they did it pseudonymously. I think they did it pseudonymously. Yeah. When you consider the pabulum that's normally published in those sort of journals, though, it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what it was, whether it was Judith Butler or someone else who was writing that E equals MC squared is a sexed and therefore fundamentally sexist equation because the speed of light is analogous to masculinity and nothing can move faster than it. Therefore, it is hierarchical. Therefore, it is sexist. And I thought, like, what's to stop me saying that C in that equation represents femininity and so it is fundamentally sexist, but in a good, fo- in a good way? Or even more fundamentally, what is to stop me from saying, no, fuck off, that represents the speed of light? That's not representing a gender. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this is off topic. Ed, but... Ed strongly recommended that we read some <laughs> Judas Butler for the show. Oh, man. I mean, yeah, he we might should. even join us if we, if, we do, <laughs> if we do a Judas Butler. He said he might join us. We can just rip into it. He fucking hates Judas Butler. <laughs> yeah, well, it's Judith Butler is the combination of she'll act, she does put her finger on real problems and then it's just buried in a pile of shit (laughs) (laughs) um so did you think i i uh how do i put this how generous should i be in in my reading of um dugan because at some point it just like with the racism thing it seemed really cynical 
That struck me as deeply cynical. So I would say it. most of the book didn't strike me as cynical. It just struck me as word but, salad. But every now and then it seemed really Then cynical. a part of the book struck me as a fairly concrete political description of someone who does not like the fact that the US is very, very powerful and able to push around other countries. Mm. And then part of it seemed like a very cynical invective against the West where he just takes things that Westerners say they don't like, like racism, sexism, things like that, redefines those terms in precisely the way that allows him to describe it, basically everything he doesn't like in the West as racist or sexist, and then say, ha-ha, look at that, I've, I've owned these libs. Yeah, we first saw this uh, with um, uh, Mussolini, right? Just hiding. Yeah. <laughs> right, yes. so propaganda. I, I've seen, I, I watch some stuff on China and occasionally see some of their propaganda. And uh, like, uh, not China, but like it's in the CCP. And um, <clears throat> seems to be quite a common tactic. Uh, it's like, um, hmm, what would you call it? It's like a, an ab- abuse of, of like the language. I call it fucking bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like it's not an argumentative tactic just to redefine a word. Yeah, yeah. And to use the residual capacity of its previous or more commonly accepted definition as an intensifier for your argument. So an, an example of this is Slavoj Žižek, who's who's re- a, a notoriously terrible thinker where he said he likes to make wild seemingly wild claims like he says Gandhi was more violent than Hitler. And you think, okay, how do you justify this? The justification is that he's redefined violence to mean affecting political change. So what he does is he makes the statement feel wild by riding the wave of the, that word violence's actual socially accept, like commonly accepted meaning. But the intellectual content of his argument is based upon his new definition of oh, well, violence means affecting political change. It's this typical bait and switch, which is just so unsatisfying. When people do that, it pisses me well, off so much. Dug- uh, and this, this is what Dugan is doing Dugan right Dugan had here. a fantastic one, which uh, have I got the... Um, have I got the... Re- Sorry, I've got a, like, reference. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Okay, let me jump to the reference. Oh, I've got a really good <laughs> one for this specifically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> can talk or whatever oh no i can go to location oh i can jump straight to a particular location with my magic kindle um uh yes yes there is yeah uh (laughs) is there anything that we could take away from liberalism from so this is he's breaking the hermeneutic circle of liberalism and he or he has just broken it and now he's like um he's fishing out whatever fucking fish heads can be cooked out of the fucking soup of garbage in the sea. Oh, that is liberalism. Sorry. <laughs> Very loose with that analogy. <laughs> liberalism is garbage in the sea. <laughs> and this is him taking pity on us and trying to, to trying to rescue some of it. He says, uh, is there anything that we could take from liberalism, from liberalism that was hypothetically defeated and has lost its axis? So like in the future, when the fourth political theory overturns liberalism, like what could that fourth political theory contain from liberalism? Um, he says, yes, there is. It is the idea, then this is, this is exactly what we were talking about, the idea of freedom, and not just the idea of freedom from, 
that same substantive freedom rejected by Mill in his liberal program concentrating on freedom from. We must say yes to freedom in all its meanings and in all its perspectives. The fourth political theory should be a theory of absolute freedom, but not as in Marxism, in which it coincides with absolute necessity. No, freedom can be of any kind, free of any correlation or lack thereof, facing any direction and any goal. Freedom is the freedom is the greatest value of the fourth political theory, which coincides with its center, with its dynamic energetic core. But this freedom is conceived as human freedom, not freedom of the individual, as the freedom of ethnocentrism and the freedom of design, the freedom of culture and the freedom of society, the freedom for any form of subjectivity except for that of the individual. <laughs> yeah. When I read that, I, I think I actually started laughing when I read that. I was like, you got to be kidding, mate. <laughs> and then he says, oh, yeah, he quotes Sartre, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre when he says, man as an individual is a prison without walls. Do these, where do these fucking people get off where they think that, that just saying something that seems... Um, contradictory is somehow profound yeah this irritates me a lot people who seem to confuse profundity and obscurity <laughs> if you just if you say something that is that like it, they'll just so say things that don't make any though. fucking sense i just that's like 95 percent of philosophy <laughs> it's just like people lighting matches in your face <laughs> <laughs> Clicking in your face. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's just like, uh, well, one on the, f well, f the first thing is like, f fuck Sean Paul Sartre. <laughs> uh, a prison, a man as an individual is a prison without walls. I mean, I'm, I bet you that's taken out of context anyway. So I'm not going to say Jean, fuck Sean Paul Sartre. I don't know. Maybe he's a good dude. But <laughs> the way that <laughs> Dugan's using it here is just like, seems to re really fucking ridiculous. Um, but, just his tactic of like saying, all right, well, we've got freedom, but you can't have individual freedom. We'll give freedom to these other things, the Dasein. It will have infinite freedom, <laughs> freedom of society, infinite freedom of form of subjectivity, except for the individual. So Dasein can do anything at once, but it can't adopt the perspective of an individual or the individual. Okay, I'm going to put on my steel manning, my steel man shapka for, for Jürgen now. <laughs> so... What, what he's talking about here. So this, this will dovetail nicely into talking about multipolarity and relativism, which are other really big features of Dugan's thought and therefore of the fourth political theory. He says that you, you, re, you can't judge a culture as better than another culture because all those judgments ab about whether something is better or not exist within the context of one culture. And so you, you can't judge the worth of one culture only from the standpoint of another culture. And then he says, people in one culture cannot understand those of another culture. It's just not possible. Mm. Which does beg the question of, as someone who says that he's Russian and then says that Russians are fundamentally opposed to the West or have always fought against the West, mm. as a Russian man of Russian culture talking about the West, then why should we take his opinions about how the West works seriously at all given that he's just acknowledged that he can't understand it he, he seems to credit himself with this apparently impossible knowledge of other cultures and then writes extensively on why this shouldn't exist but that's well maybe that's probably because, irrelevant uh, maybe it's that's because, probably uh, not he's important. been exposed to enough of it as uh 
Oh, so this is me just like trying to steal man as well. Like maybe he'd say something like the degeneration of Russian nationalism and Russian culture as uh, we've been um, infiltrated by these Western ideas, like gives him maybe some, but I still think that would contradict like what he's saying, but <laughs> I'm just trying, trying to be generous. Yeah. I, just, I don't, I don't know how you get around that. Um, before we dovetail. Um, anyway, so, so, oh, yeah, so he's talking about, he talks about this multipolarity. I've got this, um, this quote here. Undoubtedly racist is the idea of unipolar globalization. It is based on the fact that Western, especially American, society equates its history and its values to universal law and artificially tries to construct a global society based on these local and historically specific values. Democracy, the market, parliamentarianism, capitalism, individualism, human rights and unlimited technological development. These ideas are local, and globalization is trying to impose them onto all of humanity as something that is universal and taken for granted. This attempt implicitly argues that the values of all other peoples and cultures are imperfect, underdeveloped, and are subject to modernization and standardization based on the Western world. Globalization is thus nothing more than a globally deployed model of Western European, or rather, Anglo-Saxon ethnocentrism, which is the purest manifestation of racist ideology. So this is a bridge between everything I don't like is racist, a tumblerine of Dugan, and this idea of multipolarity. And this will tie into what you were saying about, um, about absolute freedom. So he talks about the ethnos as the greatest value of fourth political theory as a, as a cultural phenomenon. He says, ethnos is the greatest value of the fourth political theory as a cultural phenomenon. As a community of language, religious belief, daily life, and of sharing resources and efforts. As an organic entity written into an accommodating landscape. As a refined system of constructing models for marital unions. As an always unique means of establishing a relationship with the outside world. As the matrix of the life world. And as the source of all the language games. So... When he talks about absolute freedom, what I think he's talking about is the absolute freedom of these different ethnoses to exist and the absolute freedom of them to express themselves as organic entities. I think that's what he means as absolute freedom, as opposed to a westernised world where you've got this, he calls it a limited freedom, where it's this single belief, it's an ideological or, or ethnos monoculture which is imposing itself on the entirety of the world, wherein individuals may have freedom, but there's actually limited true freedom because there can't be other ethnoses besides that of, of the Anglo-Saxon ethnos. I think that's, that was a very long way of describing how I think he's viewing absolute freedom sure why not <laughs> let's 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 go <laughs> yeah. with that hmm. um yeah because parts well parts of that i don't disagree with so i think it is quite an arrogant idea for westerners to say look we've got it all right we're going to impose try to impose this on the rest of the world and there, there definitely is an element of that. Yeah, intervention. And look, it's not—it's um, definitely not breeding much goodwill. West, Western and a lot of the time, it just totally misses the point that maybe people 
like the culture they grew up in and don't necessarily want to be westernized. Yeah. So it would seem I'll give to, him some credit. Like that's that's that is a real thing. Western uh interventionist uh geopolitics would seem to be in contravention of related ideas in well, I don't know, from what I can judge, like Western ethics, although I think it's actually in other cultures as well, of like uh, not doing to others what you don't want them to do to you uh, seems to be like sort of like structurally important to even the ideas of things like property rights and stuff. So <clears throat> whenever, um, I think it's fairly, if, if there's a Western country intervening in another country or culture um, against like, their will um it's it's usually pretty like it's it's a pretty easy thing to say like hey that's like obviously a contradiction with regards to like these other aspects of western culture that being said it's not always that clear-cut you know there might be factions within a country that like want help from outside or whatever you know but i guess like broadly yeah. speaking <laughs> i think it actually I mean, definitely for scoring political points, you can say it's in contravention of Western culture, but I do think it, it represents more attention within Western yes. culture in that you've got, you have this idea that the individual should be able to choose, but at the same time, liberalism does universalise or it seeks a universality in that there are things like human rights um, and that uh, apply to everybody independently of their beliefs. And if they don't believe in them, undertoning. that's because they're wrong, not because human rights don't apply to them. So, and so within the context of liberalism, you can, and people do, justify foreign interventions or interventions into other cultures practising their culture on the basis of, well, what they're doing is just wrong. Yeah, or it's good for them or something, like either sort of more paternalistic or, yeah. It doesn't represent a contradiction but a, a real tension Yeah, that there are these two aspects of liberalism that don't sit necessarily comfortably with each other and but are both that there. was definitely the case that was more like it's like uh like under colonization like you know obviously it's a big like very complex but like there were aspects of colonization that were like about mm, almost like evangelism missionary stuff you know like spreading spreading not even almost like just literally yeah, yeah, yeah. like and putting putting people of colonised countries into yeah. <laughs> basically evangelism schools. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> cultural, like cultural eradication and stuff. So, um, but then like there's this like new post-World War II era of like a, a, some sort of attempted secularization of things like human rights, UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, and then there's still this like... Um, almost evangelical and you know like i can you know if you were a person in say like um i don't know the um like international development field and you you know you're thinking like yeah we should go in and help these people in these other countries i don't know like maybe like i can kind of understand where they're coming from but i i it's just like seems as though like if you're doing that against the other person's will like there's a real tension there <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I can't I don't pretend that my my beliefs of when it comes to foreign intervention are settled. No, mine aren't. I'm I'm 
I can see plenty of different arguments that, at least at the moment, I regard as fairly compelling for different reasons. It's a, there's probably not a correct, uh, a universally correct answer. <laughs> well, no, no. I guess the <laughs> the most sensible approach would be to say, well, different situations are different, and you just need a reason. You should judge it based on the individual situation. Yeah. He talks about monotonicity and evolution together in one section. And this is interesting. What is a monotonic process, Jack? A monotonic process is a process where there's basically... The way he describes it is where there is a single value or a single thing that is increasing continuously. And he contrasts this with with something that is cyclical, where you also have a decline of whatever particular thing you're examining. And he uses this as a way to criticise progress, where the idea of progress, he says, is present in all of the modern political theories. So liberalism, communism, fascism, all of them regard progress as this thing that they really are the vanguards of or the inheritors of. So in the case of liberalism, progress is the spreading of liberal values, of increasing freedom for individuals, freeing individuals from things like, from, from particular roles in society, this extension of freedom from, so freeing women from patriarchal structures in society, freeing people from racist structures, people, freeing people from caste systems. In the case of communism, this progress is a series of historical stages, so moving from feudalism to capitalism, to socialism, to finally communism. Then in the case of fascism, he says it has an evolutionary ideal. So he says, okay, well, Nietzsche's idea that the ubermensch will come about and look down on those around him, he says um, represents a monotonic process. I don't really know if this is a monotonic process in that Nietzsche just rejected the idea of progress. Mm towards something completely and said that you should revalue or the Ubermensch will revaluate his own values and live according to those. I felt like about fascism, it was a real stretch. Also because fascism had a real declinist narrative. So for example, mm. with Hitler, mm. when he was coming to power, he was describing what part of his, his pitch was basically, well, Germany is in decline and without me it will continue to decline. Mm. So that's not actually a description of a monotonic process. With Marxism as well, actually I don't think Dugan describing it as something that describes a monotonic process is right either because it has an end point. Once you get to communism or the stage of history of communism, then you don't get further progress beyond Mm. that. It stops. So it's not actually a, a monotonic increase with the specific definition of monotonicity given by Dugan as something that continues to progress forever. It's only really liberal progressivism yeah, and that only, fits his definition. I thought this was an strand, example of kind of shaky thinking. Only a strand, the strand of liberal progressivism that would, that I do not hold but it would be something along the ideas of like a sort of implicit inability to make mistakes. Cause like with, uh, with liberalism, like it has the openness for that. 
to be backwards motion. Backwards by whatever you, you know, like. But you can error correct. So even liberalism, it, like, at least on a case by case basis, it can, it can, it, it cannot be, it might not be monotonic, anyways. <laughs> um, yeah, I know, I found that one really weird. So I'll try to be nice to him and assume he's talking about the history is on our side. Yeah. Progressives. Yeah. The people who regard. Yes. Yeah. The, this, ex, this expansion of the moral sphere to encompass, you know, first it encompasses straight white men and then you expand it and it encompasses women, then you expand it and it encompasses yeah, that, uh, gay people, the, uh, then you expand it. Moral spheres, yeah. And that's they view it as this inevitability. So I, I assume he's talking about yeah, those yeah. people. If he's talking, I about guess those in the field people, of economics. Yeah, sorry. The field of economics, like the, this view that there, there does seem to be an implicit assumption with a lot of economics that growth will just go on forever. Yeah. Maybe he's talking about that yeah. as well. I would say there's an interesting. I guess this maybe I'm just nitpicking here, but I. If that's what he's attacking, the inevitability of either economic or whatever pro- sorts of progress, like there would be two two slightly different but important, like slight variations. The the variation is important. One is saying that we could, in principle, have like economic growth going on indefinitely, but it doesn't mean that it will happen. <laughs> uh, Versus like, oh, well, it will happen or like we must make it happen. You know, like some people don't believe in economic growth and I don't know they want to become monks or whatever, um, you know. Um, but if, if there are people saying like the other side of history or like we're just going to keep on ratcheting up economic growth or it will definitely happen, then I suppose maybe we'll take it as those are the people that he's characterizing are like the predominant um, voices on the uh, in, in liberal in Western liberalism. Yeah, a, a big issue with his argument here is that he seems to be saying that this monotonicity is a fundamental feature of liberalism. Yeah. And because liberalism is now turning into post-liberalism, which is something that that precludes any form of thought outside of it, therefore monotonicity is I guess, inevitable. I guess I can give him that. A criticism is that you can criticise monotonicity from within the context of liberalism. Yeah. You don't actually need to step outside of liberalism to disagree with this. Yeah, and 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 interesting. Like, okay, I'll, I I can try to like try to put it his point another way. If I sort of because it's pretty wanky that he used monotonicity as a word, but is like, <laughs> yeah, it is also he he is bending the definition yeah, of monotonicity. He's trying to, and these people, these sorts of people do this. I I think he's trying to hijack the um. Well, he specifically hijacks it from, like, mathematics and thermodynamics, and he's trying to, like, hedge his historio-political analysis and prophecies in, like, pseudoscientific language um, or scientific-sounding uh, sort of stuff. Um, uh, but um, you, you might be able to say that, like, liberalism... Or like Western liberalism, if it has like uh, this open nature, that um, open and dynamic nature that Deutsch and Popper talk about, then that is is not necessarily monotonic, but it is uh, like pushing, like it's it's a 
it's pushing change um, and perhaps even accelerating change. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you could say, well, um, you know, like the, the main difference being that like Marxism's like assumed to know where that change was taking us to like an ultimate end of history. And it's a defined state, whereas like the ultimate end of history in a globalized, hyper-technological, managerial, liberal world is not like an end state, a clear end state like Marxism. It's more like um, the static on a TV. It's just this like kind of random homogeneity with like an underlying liberal hyper accelerationism <laughs> something like that <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I'm, I'm trying to put up the best i can here man <laughs> yeah steel steel manning dugan most of the time is pretty difficult and it'll it'll get even harder because now he talks about evolution oh yeah the, no let's let's keep on going with evolution as well <laughs> yeah he regards evolution as a as really the example par excellence of modernity and to an extent or at least in a simulated sense post-modernity's obsession with monotonicity which i'll preface all of this by saying that evolution isn't a monotonic process <laughs> in the sense that dugan uses the term so he uses monotonicity to mean something that always increases which is a bit of a stretch of the term, but anyway, like, like we'll just use that definition for now. Evolution doesn't do that. Evolution, evolution doesn't have a telos, I think, is probably the, the fundamental mistake that Dugan is making. So it doesn't have an end point. It doesn't have this thing that it is striving towards. All it really is is the description that sounds basically tautological, that things which are most capable of persisting will persist preferentially to those which are less capable of persisting. It doesn't say anything about an end point or something that is being inexorably worked towards. And, and I don't know, like, we've, we've gone on our little evolution rants before and, you know, it's all good, but the, it yeah. just seems to be something that comes up so often um, in the things that we read, like... That, um, hmm, I suppose it, it's worth touching on every now and then. I, I was thinking about it today. I was thinking, like, is it worth like really unpacking it like a heap? And I, I don't want to like spend too much time unpacking it. But what one of the th main criticisms I had of both this this particular perspective on evolution or invocation of evolution, um, and even other people like the sociologists that he references herbert spencer i don't know if he's faithfully representing spencer's point of view but if this is spencer's point of view about like social darwinism then like <clears throat> they don't understand that modern darwinism the unit of analysis is the gene and what's being varied and selected is the gene and the primary like thing in it in, it, in any particular genes environment what it's competing against are the other genes and specifically what a gene is is an abstract replicator so the gene is a piece of information that's instantiated in some chemicals but point in case there's 
molecules that when there's a damage in the DNA of a cell can go and look at that like divergence from the code that's supposed to contain and do error correction. And second point in case, like RNA is a different molecule, but it also encodes information. So like it might be a very slight difference, like, but it's still a physically different substance. So we have two different substances encoding information plus the proteins encode information. So what's going on here is there's an abstract entity there that's causing physical things to do, <clears throat> to basically like channel energy and move physical matter around against the sort of blind movement that you would expect if you were just seeing like a spontaneous thermodynamic or nuclear or chemical um, process. And so when you say like a gene is increasing in the portion of the population, we're talking about like very, a very abstract thing, abstract replicators increasing in the proportion of a gene pool. This is not like talking about the survival of the fittest at the level of like these other structures. I'll try to be fair to Dugan. So he says that a fundamental feature of modernity is a belief in monotonicity, which leads to this fundamental belief in evolution. Then he brings up Herbert Spencer, who, like, yeah, during his life in the 19th century was prominent, but is not very, hasn't, hasn't been all that prominent for a while. Spencer's view was that human society is basically the next stage of animal evolution. And the struggle for survival in human society is economic. And people who have more money are just like they have more money because they're more they they just have more advantageous adaptions to how human society works than poorer people. And so Dugan looks at this and goes, Okay, so this represents basically that liberals believe that the strong should dominate the weak. Yeah. And that this is normatively good. He then brings in Ayn Rand as a representative of mainstream liberal opinion and says, yeah, look at this. This woman wrote all sorts of books about how... <sighs> like I don't actually think Ayn Rand was saying the strong should no, dominate the weak. At least in my... I'm reading... I've read The Fountainhead. She's got this, the virtue um, of selfishness. And I'm reading Atlas Shrugged. And to my mind, she's more saying that people who are capable should just be left alone to produce things. Yeah that they want it's less about domination yeah. it's more about like some people are better than others and you should let them be better <laughs> instead of instead of bringing them down yeah yeah that's that's that <laughs> is not more representative of iron it's not necessarily than, that they're better and therefore they should run the world <laughs> you should just leave them alone yeah, to it's go more and build you should just let them <laughs> do what they yeah. want and then he says okay so we know that liberals believe in the domination of the the poor by the rich and he says all right, so globalization is the struggle of the rich against the poor, wherein Westerners dominate everyone else and justify it to themselves using evolution, which itself is justified because of the almost religious belief in monotonicity. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I just think he's, he's stretching really hard here, and I don't think this works very well. Like, it's based on a redefinition of monotonicity attributed to liberalism in a way that is incomplete at very best, which is then used to justify a very incomplete view of evolution. 
there are multiple steps here, none of which work. And and then he sort of uh, equates those to modernization, growth, globalization, those sorts of things. Mm. Yeah, it's what is yeah. what do I call it? I call it like a associative thinking. I don't know if that's an actual term, um, but there's times when like having sort of loose associative thinking can be useful but if or like interesting but for it to be really useful you then need to like come back to like criticize the associate the associativity of it the loose associations and uh and i often see like peterson does this all the time jordan peterson like is terrible at it um that's like just because you can come up with a conjecture doesn't mean that that conjecture holds any weight i can come up with all sorts of things to say <laughs> it's just when you put it that, when you put it that bluntly <laughs> just because you had a thought doesn't mean it's, it's a good thought yeah and, and peterson in particular like you know and i'm i i have mixed feelings on peterson but it, like he had an, a pretty big impact on my life when i was having mental health issues just like just having like somebody say like really basically if i can make you better and shit it's like great good advice and i like some of his interviews with like anthropologists and primatologists and stuff and then some of his other stuff he's just like super associational and just doesn't give a fuck about like having any discipline in his thinking and um and just like when he says an idea he just thinks it's profound and then that's somehow like an argument for it there's this one video in particular where he i just it's like this meme that's just burnt into my memory now it's like where he's talking about well the reason why we forage for information is because blah 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 he's talking about like the foraging reflex and like information gathering is like first you get the information and then you're information oh, <laughs> you become the information that. and you're literally in jesus <laughs> And I, and I, whenever I think about that, I just think, man, God damn it. That makes mate. me sick. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, as if that is your, I mean, the guy's put out so much content, so there's going to be stuff of his that's like garbage, you know, just like ours. But like every now and then when I think about it, I just think like, mate, just sometimes your thoughts aren't good <laughs> just because even if they sound catchy. And I think this is the same thing with like, we got it with, um, with we're certainly getting it with Dugan. <laughs> we got it with um who's the other oh Evola maybe a little bit? Where it's just like they can find associations. Evola's got a lot of it, but he is a lot more disciplined they than can Dugan find or Jordan Peterson. Uh, associations. But it's like, okay, if I propose that there's an association between these two things, a lot of the time these these sorts of thinkers will take that association as a given <laughs> and not explain it. <laughs> Why should we take a real it exemplar it? of this this school of thought is Oswald Spengler. I'm reading The Decline of the West at the How's moment. How's that going? And it's a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying it. Are you doing but that with Ed? He's basically taken drawing parallels between things in history to the really to the point of being an art form. I've never seen someone do it to the extent that he does. It's supposed to be really fun, right? But with regards to Spangler and those other people, like they seem to be taking like a, is Dugan doing it as well? Or maybe Marx did it as well. It's like, if we find this association, this like pendulum of history or something, then we can map current events to that and make a prediction. I assume that's what Spangler's doing. I haven't read Spangler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Spangler has a, yeah, definitely a variation on that theme. 
his morphological theory of history. <laughs> so good. I've got a quote here from um, Dugan um, where he's talking about um, what to do instead of, instead of this monotonicity. He says, uh, instead of modernization and growth, we need the direction of balance, adaptability, and harmony. Instead of moving upward and forward, we must adapt to that which exists to understand where we are and to harmonize socio-political processes. And most important, instead of growth, progress, and development, there is life. After all, one is yet to prove that life is linked to growth. This was the myth of the 19th century. Life, in contrast, is connected to eternal return. In the end, even Nietzsche incorporated his idea of the will to power into the concept of eternal return. Yeah, I think so. There are a few things I'd like to say. <laughs> One, as we've, we've already established that the SJW to Russian nationalist pipeline is very strong in Dugan demonstrating his SJW ability to call everything racist. This is now the Dugan as woo-woo practitioner where he loves harmony and life. And I was half expecting him to start talking about vibrational frequencies and SE5s. I also want to talk about like the Nietzsche's eternal recurrence idea. Do you reckon he has a uh, an SE five? Shoves it up his butt. Dugan, <laughs> Dugan. yeah, yeah. I, I, I imagine. I imagine he does. SE5. I think. Do you think that the SE five is actually just a very complicated uh, pegging device? I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> it it could be. I mean, the fact that there was a a leather strap <laughs> for the tuning wand. <laughs> Tune my uh, male G-spot, Putin. <laughs> Come over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, the prostate tenderizer attachment for the SE5 made me think <laughs> that it was actually a very very strange sex toy. So, so you were about because you've actually read Nature. I I, I haven't um, at least not any meaningful amount. Um, and you yeah, know a bit well, more about his eternal return. Concept. He seems here. So eternal return. I think it was. First in Thus Spake Zarathustra, where Zarathustra starts talking about how he has this door before him, which is the future, and a door behind him, which is the past. And you just keep walking through these two doors and keep looping and live every moment over and over and over and over again. And I think he fleshed out this concept in subsequent books. I, at least, don't take this idea of eternal return as something that is literally true. I don't think Nietzsche was saying... You will literally live every moment of your life an infinite number of times. I took it more as an ethical imperative of, okay, you should live your life in such a way that were you forced to repeat it infinitely, you would be happy with it. Whereas Dugan here seems to be taking it as something far more literal than I think it was intended to be. I think he does whatever the fuck he wants with whatever ideas he wants. <laughs> <laughs> he just does what he wants. Is the ultimate expression of his will. Um, I also wanted to read out this other quote, which I thought was worth uh, noting, uh, which is only just a little bit further on further. Uh, he says, uh, we must put an end to the antiquated political ideologies and theories. If we have truly rejected Marxism and fascism, then what remains is to reject liberalism. Liberalism is an equally outdated, cruel, misanthropic ideology like the two previous ones. The term liberalism should be equated with the term fascism and communism. Liberalism is responsible for no fewer historical crimes than fascism and communism. It is responsible for slavery, the destruction of the Native Americans in the US, for Hiroshima and Nagasaki, for the aggression in Serbia, Iraq and Afghanistan, for the devastation and the economic exploitation of millions of people on the planet, and for the ignoble and cynical lies which whitewash 
this history. This is uh, his full purple hair. I, do you reckon he got he wrote that paragraph before or after going to the hairdressers and uh, getting getting his uh, eyebrows waxed and his hair dyed purple? <laughs> I think this was after he bought his latest see-through purple plastic horn-rimmed glasses <laughs> and chunky earrings. Uh, yeah, I think he's bald. Maybe he just has a purple beard. So the thing is, this is. Yeah, he's bald. Yeah. <laughs> purple beard. He's, he's just old. here he's <laughs> big purple beard. <laughs> the thing is, the difference between fascism, liberalism, and communism well, there are quite a few differences, but <laughs> nah. <laughs> fascism and communism error corrected pretty poorly in that <laughs> there were significant abuses under those systems and those were almost design features. Like the they were intentional. Say, they were extremely intentional. That's what they wanted. Yeah, pra- <laughs> practitioners of communism, when they were exterminating kulaks in, in the Soviet Union, it's not like someone went, oh, actually, maybe we shouldn't be doing this and should stop. No, that was a design feature. That was meant to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In the case of liberalism, like terrible things have been done by liberal societies. However, I would say almost invariably those things, for example, slavery, were just completely in violation of liberal principles. Like and it was subsequently profoundly hypocritical. Subsequently, but uh, yeah, but those weren't design features of liberalism, and they actually were error corrected. And presumably, we will continue. Like maybe there are things that we're doing now that I don't know about that are like really abhorrent and transgressive against those principles. And perhaps if we live in a functioning liberal society. Uh, those will be uncovered and corrected as well. Um, but that doesn't mean that they didn't happen. Like colonization, I think, is one of the deep scars that like really like the the sort of multi-century hangover of, of that chapter of history from like coming out of Europe for like uh, people who had some like very advanced ideas around like creating knowledge and that sort of stuff for people from those societies to, like, mount colonisation on other parts of the world uh, is, like, that still happened, but it doesn't take... But that also doesn't negate that, like, those are also the same societies that were, like, oh, actually, like, we fucked up. <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> like, we should It might have taken this. them 200 years or something <laughs> or however long it took. But eventually mm-hmm. people started going, like, well, this is pretty fucking... This is pretty hypocritical, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I yeah, don't know, whatever. I but think then again, that's what, monotonic what he's thinking. Not, so what the what fuck? he's not pointing out here is really... Yeah, the error correction capacity is, I think, a major point of distinction between... Fascism, communism, and liberalism. Yeah, and so communism is an extremely ossified ideology. In that, basically, for all their talk about being post-religion and opposing religion and loving rationality and science, state. they really take Marx to be a prophetic figure. Like they, they'll read Capital. Oh, this is it is a prophecy. It, almost in an exegetical sense, they 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 read it as a religious text and try to work out. How to apply the words of the prophet <laughs> the, to the prophet situations, <laughs> for example, like the information economy in in the West in the 21st century, which Marx didn't talk about. How do we apply the words of the prophet exegetically to these conditions, which are just contrary to how he predicted history would happen? It's such an ossified ideology that 
it can't error correct. Similarly, like fascism, fascism didn't live for very long. But even during its short life, it didn't error correct. And Dugan just totally misses this point. Yeah, I, I wonder if he... um, It doesn't seem... See, hmm, why is this the case? It doesn't seem as though any of the authoritarian writers that we've read have dealt with the error correction problem. Am I, mis- am I misrepresenting the people that we've read? <laughs> has, has one of them figured out a way to do error correction outside of liberalism? Certainly that's, at least to my mind, one of, if not the most potent features of liberalism. I, I'm, well, if we have read something, I can't remember having read somebody from an authoritarian point of view, like, account for error correction. Mm. <laughs> it seems to be something where, like, yeah, the people I guess at just least... assume that they're doing the right thing and there is no space for error correction because yeah. they're not in error. Yeah, well, there, there is a tension between authoritarianism and that form of self-critical error correction in that it presupposes that you're going to make mistakes which itself doesn't totally undermine the idea of authoritarianism because you could say well the authoritarian is the one best capable of of acting to correct those mm. mistakes through their own individual judgment that would be a, but that would be a slight it one. at least throws up it th- at least throws up obstacles to the idea of Authoritarianism. Yeah, I suppose it would degrade the because it illusion. acknowledges their fallibility. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the fallibility of the um, of the demagogue would actually like undermine what they're trying to do, or the, even if it's perceived fallibility, like the risk of perceived fallibility or weakness or, or whatever. Um, should we do the reversibility of time and then uh, call it a night? Yeah. So the weird thing about Dugan's view of time, apparently he wrote an entire book on time, so he probably fleshes it out a bit more there. Yeah. The issue is that he doesn't he doesn't explain where he's getting these ideas of time from. I have a few theories, but they could well be wrong. So I'll read out a quote to start this off. Time is a social Mm. phenomenon. Its structures don't depend upon object characters, but upon the domination of social paradigms, because the object is assigned by society itself. In modern society, time is seen as irreversible, progressive, and unidirectional. But this is not necessarily true inside societies that do not accept modernity. In some societies without a strict modern conception of time, cyclic and even regressive conceptions of time exist. Therefore, political history is considered in the topography of plural conceptions of time for the fourth political theory. There are as many conceptions of time as there are societies. Mm. So he does a sneaky Dugan here (laughs) to begin his discussion of time, a sneaky little Dugan (laughs) where he says, okay, I'm talking about the conceptions of time. However, as the book progresses, he stops talking about conceptions of time and just starts talking about time. Now, if I'm going to be very generous, I'd say... Dugan loves himself some Heidegger and maybe he's, he's saying, okay, well, the conception of time, your phenomenology is in a significant sense reflected in your ontology, in your being, and maybe the two aren't even separable. Therefore, your conception of time and time itself are the same. So if time is just this social construct, then 
any discussion of time is actually just a reference to an individual or a person or a society's conception of time subjectively. Therefore, so-called objective time is just a reflection of one society's subjective time. I think that's what he's doing here. So I'll, I'll read out another, uh, uh, another quick quote. Uh, he says, like, uh, uh, the fourth political theory constructs reconstructs society behind modern axioms. That's why the elements of the different political forms can be used in the fourth political theory without any connection to time scale. There are no stages and no epochs, only concepts and preconcepts. Um, uh, it says, um, uh, there, there's basically like no topography of objective historical time. There's no such thing. Uh, if time is historical, it cannot be objective. Uh, Dasein says the same. Dasein is the subject of the fourth political theory. Uh, and then he goes on to say, time is a political category. Political time is a preconcept of a political form. Um, yeah. 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 So this is what I alluded to earlier in the episode when I said uh, chronological relativism. So his his relativism goes all yeah. the way to the point of like within a particular say ethnos or state or whatever, if they have a different conception of time, then because he's a phenomenologist, he's like, well, that is in fact what the time is for them. And there's another part. Uh, well, I guess maybe we can move on to the ontology of the future because um, that uh, the stuff about time was just like a couple of pages before I think his real thing that he's saying in the ontology of the future. Um, <clears throat> He says he makes this really weird point where he's like two, and correct me if I'm mistaken, Jack, but two political groups, polities, or I don't know, ethnoses or whatever, could could interact with one another, but their times. Let's see if I've got the actual quote, but their times will not interact. Something like that. Um, do you remember reading that part? I'll see if I can find the, the quote. I felt that this was mostly part of his broader point that because different ethnoses can have 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 different subjectivities or impose different yeah. structures of subjectivity upon the people living within them and because one's subjectivity ultimately gives rise to their being or is the foundation of their being therefore they're ontologically different and can't understand each other so they might be able to understand certain things that they have in common but their time their conceptions of time could be different and therefore their actual times are different at this point in our recording life intervened we had to stop and pick up this thread on another day so expect another dugan episode in the future where we will finish discussing the fourth political theory see you next time